You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the For Love of Land Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. Each week, we're interviewing guests from across America. They all have one thing in common. They all are tied to the land. So if you're like us and you love all things land, welcome home. All righty. Welcome back to a For Love of the Land podcast. This is your host, Matt Dye. And today, we've got on returning guests becoming a very popular subject and guest on the podcast todd watts are you there i am here all righty righty we had a fantastic conversation a few weeks back i guess it was really the last part of january where we discussed a pond that's on your property i say pond it's a lake um that you help design build and manage and we we really went through construction of that pond and resources that you put in the pond that you had just dreamed of for 16 years what that pond and lake would be like you know from a construction design build standpoint the response was awesome people loved it um loved just the creativity and the thought process that went behind building such a lake and and i think there's a lot of parallels between you know us and habitat focus that we do and then talking about developing land but you know this was a brand new subject and there are so many things and so many details um so it's only right if we have you back on to discuss more because we we scratched the surface is that right oh yeah yeah in fact if you remember the 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 audio cut off we didn't know we had probably 10 or 15 more minutes going that's right. And and the audio cut off and, and we, it, we didn't even get in all we talked about. Oh, yeah, this this we spent a lot of time talking about more of the design and, and so forth. But we didn't get to a whole lot of of man in the managing the waters and managing the forage and things like that as well. Mm-hmm. Shoot. Like like we said on the thing, we could do 70 podcasts on. This oh, yeah, absolutely. It, you know, there's always something um, more to learn or, or, you know, just go into more detail about the finer points of, of cover or structure on the, the food, um, or just the general maintenance that, that you, that comes with these lakes, um, managing all those. So, um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of that today, but real quickly for people who may not have, have caught that, um, bring about the speed on, um, say the Hogan, the lake itself, And sure. you know a couple key components that you that you included on the design there. Okay, great. Well, I, again, for those who haven't heard, I'll I'll try to make it brief for those who have. Basically, 17 years ago, uh, I I owned a farm and ended up selling it, and from that point, I st- I had always had the dream of actually building a bass lake from scratch, because I felt that if I really wanted to have a true quality largemouth bass lake, I wanted to build it from scratch. So for about the last 16 years, I read, studied, watched videos, talked to biologists, learned everything I could about the design of a, of a trophy bass lake. So even in my proper searching for property that I bought three or four years ago, I guess three years ago now, the key was to be able to build a, a, a nice bass lake. And I wanted one minimum of three acres, maximum of about six or seven. Mm-hmm. So I wanted that sweet spot of four to five acres, and that's exactly what I got. And so in, in building this lake, we we not only did we lay out how the lake was going to be formed from, from the dam and so forth, but I actually planned out basically every inch of the bottom of the lake with structure and cover and, and all the things a bass needs because most there's there's several million lakes and ponds in the United States and nine over 90 percent of them are built like a bowl mm-hmm. just just a bowl with no real structure or cover but bass are very much like deer and other wildlife species they're creatures of edge so you know they need cover to hide in they need cover to relate to and travel along they need places to food to feed and congregate and spawn 
So just like a deer needs saddles and ridges and food plots and cover and dense cover and thick cover and places to move, bats are the same way. And, and really all game fish are. So we spent basically uh, about seven to eight months actually building the pond, laying out the bottom, and we stocked it very aggressively. And now we have our pond. Actually, it's I guess it's a lake. I don't know what the definition of a <laughs> pond versus a lake is, but well, we're going to use those terms acres. interchangeably, mm-hmm. I'm sure, throughout yeah. the entire mm-hmm. podcast. Sure, but yeah, that's so that's, that's a kind of the background. Yeah, great, that's kind of great the review of of okay. This is basically laying the groundwork. This ain't your normal lake that you just drive by. You're like, oh, okay, you know, there, there's a body of water. What's underneath <laughs> that you can't see um, is truly right. incredible. And and we'll share that picture again. Um, probably in the show notes of this podcast of what the yeah, bottom looks like right. before it filled up, basically post-construction and before water came in there. But I think, Todd, one of, one of the key components to having um, a really successful, long-term, healthy, sustainable, close system um, goes into the actual food that's available for what it is you're trying to produce. Your goal is to produce the largest bass in caught freshwater there in Ohio. That's correct? That's right. Yeah, we, we have a stated goal. And, and my stated goal from the start was I want to grow the state record bass. Now, in Ohio, that's 13.13 pounds. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now we may never catch that bass because they get really hard to catch once they get above about eight or nine pounds. But I truly believe in my heart that we will grow that bass. Sure. And and, I can, and we'll talk a little bit. We talked briefly the last time about what we stocked it with and mm-hmm. how we stocked it. And I think that's probably worth a little more exploring. But because this bass lake was, was built and designed from the start to be a bass fishing lake, it wasn't designed to water cattle. It wasn't designed for swimming. It wasn't designed for, although we can swim in it, mm-hmm. and, and it wasn't designed for those things. It was designed strictly to be a bass lake. So, so everything from the planning of the lake to the stocking to the developing of the food chain, everything was done to grow the state record bass. Yep. So let's let's start right there with the food chain, specifically sure. for bass. Sure. Um, sure. Bottom to top, let's just break that down because, as we always talk, you know, with land, um, ecology, just the environment, everything that we see, everything is so very um, interconnected. And breaking out, you know, the food chain for bass and everything that they consume and how things are just built upon one another, um, I think it's going to really provide a great illustration of, of, okay, in the bass world, this is how dynamic things are. So if you will, start out there with, with the bass food chain, what that looks like um, for from a long-term success if you're looking to improve a, and or just grow Great, great bass in a pond. What do you need to have from a food chain standpoint? Okay, uh, that's a that's a great a great place to start because it's sort of the base. In a bass lake, just like in a in deer habitat or anything else, or even for humans, so goes the habitat, so goes the food chain, so goes the quality and the health of the bass and or the bluegill. Mm-hmm. So we'll start at the very bottom. If you look at the base of the food chain. You basically to have a great fishery, you have to to grow great phytoplankton and zooplankton and and all the things that start at the bottom, insects and so forth. So the base of the food chain is the phytoplankton, the zooplankton, all the the microscopic and small bugs and and all the little things that are in your pond. The stuff that you can't see or if you do, it's very like just a little cloudy, very tiny, tiny stuff. Looking That's at right. it, you you think, oh my gosh, how how does that amount to anything, or why is that important? It looks just like it's cloudy in the water, or you know, it looks so um, useless. But it's so important. It's it's the the building block, the base, Absolutely. the foundation. Absolutely. And if you think about, have you ever seen a lake or a pond or even a, a an ocean or whatever? But let's look specific at lakes and ponds. If you see a very 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 clear, beautiful, crystal clear pond Mm -hmm. that is a pond that doesn't have much food Mm -hmm. because because if you think about it all the microscopic organisms and the zooplankton the phytoplankton the algae and all the things that that create that base of the food chain they're not clear they have color sure so when you see a a lake or a pond that has it's kind of like a pea green look to it almost like a soup Mm 
Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not talking about filled with blue-green algae or anything like that, but it, right. we call it a plankton bloom. Mm-hmm. It's got that slight, you know, pea-green look to it. And, in fact, they have what's called a sechi disc. Now, that's how you judge your, phyto, your plankton bloom. Mm-hmm. It's called a sechi disc. And it's just this white disc that has – that has actually, it's white and black. Yep. And you put it down in the water, and you judge how far down you can see that disc. So basically, and the, usually the you, depth feet-wise down. Depth. That's right. And and the, the the good depth is somewhere between about 15 and 20 inches. If it, if you quit seeing it about 20 inches, you have a good plankton bloom. Now, I'm not talking about muddy water. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about just that that nice pea green look. If you can if you if you can't see it down down, let's say you, you get to 10 or 12 inches and it goes away and you can't see it. That's too much. Then your water's too nutrient. It has too many nutrients, too many. It has too much plankton in it and too much of those nutrients and those that base the food chain. And you have the risk of it being eutrophic, and w- which means it's got too many nutrients and you, you might have a fish kill mm-hmm. because all that stuff is using up oxygen. So and we'll, we don't need to really get into that. But there's but- this perfect... It, it's, it's something to note, though. I mean, you know, basically, yes. too much of a good thing can be a bad thing, and and it goes back oh, to absolutely. finding finding the balance. And like you said, these are living organisms, so they're utilizing you know the dissolved oxygen in the water, and they can suffocate out these larger fish, and and you can see that result. You you have fish kills when you have too That's much right. of this. So basically, there is a, right. there's a balance that you have to find. But basically, just goes back to overall management you have to have it managed right. if you're wanting to grow these types of or you have these goals you have to you know properly maintain and manage things right. that's right and i got a little ahead of myself for the plankton bloom so bring me back to that in just a moment mm-hmm. but let's talk back to the base of the food chain okay so you start out with the microscopic organisms the phytoplankton the zooplankton the small bugs and so forth if you think about it when a small fish whether it be a bass or a bluegill when they're first hatched they literally absorb their yolk sac uh-huh. at first. That's how they survive their first minutes and, and you know, so their first moments on this earth, or in this case in the water, yeah. is they absorb their yolk sac. Once they absorb that, they have to feed. Uh-huh. Well, their mouths are very small, so they can't go out and eat a big fish or even a small fish. They can only eat small little microscopic things and or bugs, insects, things like that. Now, as they grow... They get bigger and bigger, and then they start eating small fish, and then they start getting bigger and bigger, and then eventually you've got this eight-pound bass that can eat a two-pound bass. Mm-hmm. So that's the food chain just grows, whether it's bass, whether it's bluegill, and you know, and so forth. So the, the, it all starts from the base of the food chain, which goes back to that phytoplankton bloom. There's several things that affect that. If you have a water that is too clear and it's not nutrient enough, you can fertilize it. You can lime and fertilize it just like you do your food plots because the fertility of the lake determines that how much of the base of that food chain there is in your pond. Sure. If you have too many nutrients and you have, you know, if you have to worry about a fish kill, then you've got some other problems. And that generally happens with older lakes that are very, that have many, 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 many years of, of waste and, and fish waste and all those things on the bottom. And that's a to- totally other discussion. Right. But there are things you can do as a manager to affect both of those things. You can air, aerate or diffuse, for example, mm-hmm. to help to help with a, a, a too nutrient-rich lake. If you don't have enough nutrients, you fertilize and you lime. There's things you can do to help the base of the food chain. Big big parallel there with, with healthy soil. And the amount Absolutely. of microorganism, healthy bacteria, fungi that actually grows in a well-balanced soil, and it, it's crazy how how interconnected this this all is. But go back to it's funny. It's Matt. It's funny you mentioned soil. We actually had a lime truck mm-hmm. dump three tons of lime per acre in the bottom of this pond before we filled it up with water. Wow. Yeah, that's how important pH is. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Long long term success. I mean, you you've got to dot your I's and cross your T's, and it because it, it plays such an important role. And it's easier, I'm sure, as you're in the construction standpoint, to basically treat it. Then get things balanced. Take your soil sample, and then from there, you know, okay, I'm I'm 
I'm where I need to be pH soil wise, and that's then going to affect the water. Um, and, and just start out right, get it done at the beginning right, and then yeah. move on. And then if you don't, if you're not able to do that from the beginning, you can actually, for example, lime a pond, uh, an existing pond. Mm-hmm. You, you, they actually make boats that you can put lime on and you yep. spray it out into the water. Some people literally take a lime truck or a lime spreader and go around the edges and spread lime. Uh, there's many ways that you can help correct that pH and, and help bring that food chain up if if you're lacking in pH or, or nutrients. Uh, but but once you get the base of the food chain, Matt, then you have to 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 make sure that you're protecting your small fish and mm-hmm. or your what, what we call recruiting. It's recruitment. It's no different than fawn recruitment in the bass world in the in the bluegill world. It's called recruitment because yep. if you're not recruiting new bass and or new bluegill, which in this particular lake is the base or is the the forage species for our bass is bluegill, right? And minnows and so forth. If you're not recruiting those, then there's no there's not enough feed for the smaller fish to feed on, which feed the bigger fish. So again, you, you need because remember it takes 10 pounds yep. of bait fish. If you remember from our last talk, that's right. 10 pounds of bait fish to put one pound on a bass. Live weight on a, on a bass. Live weight. That's right. That's and right. and it there's a lot of bait fish in 10 pounds. A lot. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it takes a lot. So. So from there, basically the foundation there is the the phytoplankton, zooplankton. And then you're building up to the to the small bait fish, which is your, is your bluegill. Um, but talk about like, and, and I know I'm bringing into a, a, a key word here or a buzzword in, in our system or in our uh, circle of people, but predators, like predator fish, things like that. What happens? Because sure. this is a closed system. This is not you know right. a property, and this is not you know the discussion of coyotes and raccoons, this and that. This is a closed system. If they're there, you're going to see uh, basically a, a difference in, in predation uh, long-term than, than in, in an open system. So talk about how, how the presence of or too many predator fish um, can play such an important role in sure. your food chain. Absolutely. And, and in this particular case, we're talk, because we're talking about a basically a bass lake, I'm going to make a couple assumptions first, and then we'll talk about how other fish in the system play a role. Mm-hmm. But basically, in a largemouth bass lake, generally speaking, the bass is the ultimate predator. Sure. If you, and, and the way you tell a predator size is by mouth size. You can tell by, for example, a, a, a large mouth, a big, huge, largemouth bass, you can fit your fist. Yeah. Well, if, if a bass can get it in their mouth, they will eat it. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's been many, many, many examples of people finding dead bass on the side of a pond and looking, and in their mouth sticks out a bass about the same size. They literally tried to swallow a bass that was as big as they were. And and so a bass can pretty, they eat frogs, they eat mm-hmm. ducks, they eat snakes, they eat rodents, yep. they eat other fish. So they're the ultimate predator in most bass lakes. Now I'll talk again in a few minutes about some other types of predators that are in a lot of lakes like catfish and crappie and, and so forth and so on. But in this particular case, uh, Bass is the ultimate predator. Now, there are are quite there are several what we call forage species in a in a great quality bass lake. The backbone of the of that is the bluegill. The bluegill is the backbone of the food chain for a really quality largemouth bass lake. And so it's very important to have a great population of bluegill in all 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 asset or excuse me, all size classes young, intermediate, and older. Because bass in this part of the country, which is the midwit, excuse me, bluegill, in this part of the country will spawn two or three times. Right. So you'll get two or three spawns out of a bluegill throughout the summer, which really helps the base of that food chain. Sure. Now, farther south, they can spawn up to four or five times. Farther north, you're probably only get one or two spawns, mm-hmm. but it's extremely important that the bluegill are the base of the food chain. Now, I, when I was growing up, I was taught the bluegill were a very bad thing. Right. But people didn't understand that in a bass lake, a, a healthy population of bluegills is a very good thing. Okay. 
Now, you mentioned predation. A bass lake, because it's a closed system, if, if two things, there, first of all, if there's not enough cover in the lake to protect the young and the intermediate size fork fish like the bluegill and so forth, and even the small bass, the bass will quickly devastate their own food supply. Right. They have no internal mechanism that says don't eat too much of the food. They'll just mm-hmm. eat, eat, eat until there's nothing left. Mm-hmm. And then you have a bunch of way overpopulation of skinny bass that have very little to eat, and they're all stunned and they're skinny. Right now, um, and we'll we'll talk. We can talk about it's that like, again. It's like a browse line for deer. You go yes. into the timber, right. and you just can see. Wow, there's not enough right. forage here. Right, the lake has a carrying capacity just mm-hmm. like deer woods do. Yep. And it's very much a similar, uh, it's a similar idea. Now, right. let's talk about a few of the other species of fish. You've got what's called red air sunfish, which we stock those here. Mm-hmm. Or called, they're called shell crackers. They're, they're, they're also in the bluegill type family. And they actually have a little red around where, where, where you would think their ear would be. Yep. And, and they actually eat snails, crustaceans. Yep. And a lot of the snails carry parasites. Right. So it's a way to keep your lake from getting parasites. So they're they're a, they don't spawn as much, but they're mm-hmm. a very healthy thing to have in a lake. Sure. Down south, lakes have a lot of um, of what's called threadfin shad. Shad are a phenomenal uh, forage fish for bass. Right. But they don't really live up in the Midwest and up north. They they will die because it gets too cold. So, but they're a great uh, forage species down south. Now, uh, in the north, sometimes we use gizzard shad. Now, the problem with gizzard shad is gizzard shads get pretty big. And the problem is, is that if you don't have bass big enough to eat and keep the population of those gizzard shad down, then they get they get too many. Now, mm-hmm. they they don't compete with the bass for the food chain per se because they're filter feeders. Gotcha. They don't eat. Yeah. But but they eat the they filter feed, but. Again, if you get too many, then then they start hitting the base of that food chain. So you have to make sure your backer bass are big enough that they can eat eat the gizzard shad and keep their populations down. Sure. Um, so that's another forage species. And then crawdads. Yeah. Bass love crawdads, and they're they're a great protein meal. Another another species that we're going to be doing this year on our lake, we call Lake Mickey here, is we're going to stock trout now. If, if, you, if you know anything about a trout, which I'm sure most of our listeners do, they're a cold water species. Trout is one of the most nutritious, high in protein meals for both humans yeah. and for fish. If you look at some of the lakes out in California and some of the places that are growing these world record bass, a lot of them are eating trout. Hmm. And, and so not only are they very super high in protein, but because their bodies are made kind of shaped like a cigar mm-hmm. they're easy to swallow so a bass can swallow a larger trout per protein size than they can a bluegill and i think sure. the bluegill it's kind of fat and it's got yeah. these these spiny um, scales and gills and and so forth and fins uh, but trout's very streamlined exactly yeah so the, so a bass can, Torpedo can swallow yes they can swallow pretty large trout so one thing you can do is you can stock trout in the fall, mm-hmm. catch them and have a blast catching them all winter long. Sure. And then as the summer comes around and spring comes around and the, and the temperatures start to warm up, they slow down because they don't like warm water. Right. So right when the bass are starting to feed up for summer and feed up for spawning and so forth, then they can feed on the trout that are slowing down met- met- metabolically because the water is getting too warm. Yep. Yep. Now, the reason we haven't done that in the last two years is because, you know, our bass was stocked brand new. Mm-hmm. You have to have some seven and eight pound bass and so some of the bigger bass to be able to eat those uh, those those trout. So sure. we're, we're going to be in year three this fall. So we're going to actually stock trout. That's awesome. Both for fun and well, to dual feed purpose. our bass. Yeah. Yeah. And, and let, me, let me mention one more thing about the food chain and, and feed. One, one question with that trout. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, sure. Your, it, does that rule still apply um, one pound of weight for 10 pound of um, bait fish? Sure. 
Does that sure. still apply sure. for the trout, even though they're they're much more sure. healthier? Or is the conversion similar? I, I you know I would I would have to ask a, you know Bob Lust our, yeah. our our biologist that help us with a lot of our design and so forth. My guess is is it's because they are very high in protein. There's probably a little bit better conversion rate. Right. But they but they still are you know 80 90 percent water just like most mm-hmm. fish are. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there is definitely some better conversion than 10 to 1. Yeah. But I don't know what that number is. Gotcha. Uh, but because the 10 to 1 is sort of an average. Sure. But there are definitely more nutritious fish than others. Right. Some have more protein and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, let me mention a couple other species very quickly. Yep. Tilapia. Tilapia is a misunderstood fish. Right. Tilapia actually eat algae. Mm-hmm. And so we stock tilapia every spring and late spring here to help control our algae, but they also sp- spawn prolifically. Hmm. And and so they add to the base of the food chain. They spawn all throughout the summer, and the, and and all the fish and and all the species get to feed on those those young tilapia. The bad thing is in this part of the country. They die yeah. once the water temperature gets below about 50 in that 48 degrees. So you see a lot of dead tilapia around the pond, and it feeds the birds. Now, the ospreys come in at that time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now, that's the big tilapia. Now, the, the medium to smaller, they get eaten up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's more food. Not only do they help control your algae, but it's it's adding more food into the system. Yep. Uh, now, real quickly, we, we, briefed, we briefly talked about this on the last podcast. But we supplementally feed, mm-hmm. and because because we not only want to grow the state record bass, but we want to have high catch rates. Sure. And if you look at those two management goals, they're typically counterproductive. It's hard to have high catch rates and grow big fish because if you have a lot of fish, you have too many mouths yep. and they don't have enough food, so they grow they don't grow as big. But if you have huge, huge, huge bass. That means you have less population. So the way we counter that is we supplementally feed. Mm-hmm. And you can feed both your bluegill and your bass. But the key here is bass have to be feed trained from the hatchery. Bass do not come to feed unless they were feed trained from the hatchery. You have to buy feed trained largemouth bass. Bluegill will, but right. bass will not. Very interesting. And so we feed our bluegill here small pellets. And the bass will eat those as well. And then we feed our bass. They're a little bit smaller than a golf ball size. They're called largemouth pellets, and the bluegill can't eat them. So we're feeding those to our bass. Mm-hmm. And I think we told this to listeners last time. We fed 2,000 pounds last year of largemouth feed. So we know we added 1,000 pounds, or actually it's probably about 1,500 pounds of meat to our because those convert. I said last time they convert about two to one. Mm-hmm. Bob reminded me after a conversation, the conversions rate is closer to one to one. Wow. It's probably about wow. 1.3. So mm-hmm. for every 1.3 pounds of that food, you feed the fish, they actually grow a pound. Mm. So if you think that through, That's 10 pounds lot. of bait fish to add a pound or one pound of feed <laughs> to add a pound. Very efficient. Very, very efficient. Yes. Mm-hmm. So is with that feed... Um, I'm, I'm guessing it's dehydrated fish, bait fish yes. that is just packed together. And, and then sure. you're not consuming basically weight wise, sure. all that water weight. It's just straight sure. energy. Yes, it is. And, and, and that's a whole other discussion, but it's worth mentioning a couple things. Number one is this is specially designed food. Mm-hmm. If you go back, you look at most feed, they're grain based, okay? right? Like catfish food. It is not fish meal. It's generally more of a grain-based food. So, so you're feeding just any feed. You're not really giving the bass and the bluegill the nutrition they need. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the what we feed is Aquamax. It's Purina Aquamax. It's specifically designed for sport fish, the bluegill and the bass. And it's actually made out of fish meal. It's yep. actually got fish in it. And they actually took a the way that the guy who designed this along with Bob Lusk at Purina, they actually took a trout and they, they looked at the nutritional value of a trout and they basically tried to create a dehydrated pellet that best matched the, the protein and the nutrition of a trout. Sure. Because that's what was feeding these 
mm-hmm. huge, huge bass that are being caught out in California and even in Japan. I see. And so that's how they came up with it. And, and it's very important if you're going to have a bass lake and a bluegill lake, do not feed grain-based feed. Mm-hmm. That's for catfish. Don't feed your catfish fish to your bass or your catfish food. You have you need to feed them sport fish, which is fish meal based. Um, now, I mentioned catfish. We talked about predators. Yes. One of the things that's really, really important, if you're wanting to have a true trophy bass lake, you have to be careful not to add in other predators. Mm-hmm. For example, catfish. Some people love catfish and, and, and love catching. We didn't put any catfish in our pond here, really, for a couple of reasons. Number one is they eat the same things bass do. Sure. So we don't want them competing for our bass for food. Mm-hmm. Number two, they typically, they can muddy up the water. And they can, you know, burrow and they get in logs and things like that. And we just didn't want that in our pond. So they're a predator we did not put in our pond. Another one is crappie. Mm-hmm. Crop, they're fun to catch. They're great to eat, but they have these these mouths that are for their size is pretty big, and it's like a, it's kind of an accordion look. Yeah, and they can eat a pretty big meal, so they compete with the bass. Even perch, perch compete with the bass. Although a bass likes to eat a perch, we don't want them spawning and being prolific in a pond, so we didn't add any perch. Same thing with walleye, and on and on and on. Again, mm-hmm. you can add these species in. But it will affect your ability to grow big, largemouth bass. Now, if you don't mind me me cutting in right there, sure, it's a great point to make right there. The very front end of whatever it is you're doing from a from a land management standpoint, um, whether it's you know improving the quality, the cover of of deer, uh, trying to grow great big deer, trying to grow incredible bass, establish goals, and then. Mm do what you're going to do on a yearly basis to reach that goal. If you start right. doing activities that are going to slow you down or inhibit you from reaching those goals, really consider not doing them because then but not, not necessarily a waste of time, but it's getting you farther or just a longer time span from actually reaching those goals. And, and it's important, like right. a lot of these things – you know, we're talking about, you know, you're putting in fish, um, a few fish when you stock that are two pounds, but you're trying to catch, you know, 10 plus double digit pounds uh, right. of fish. This takes years to develop. So if you're starting to oh, incorporate yeah. all these other, um, let's say, predators into this system, or you're starting to do things that's going to inhibit another goal across a property, you're going to slow down the progress and the rate of success. Um, so basically establishing goals, developing a management plan, and then executing based on those goals is going to get you there the quickest. That's right, and it and, and it and it works the same way in regular land ownership. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean let's go back to the pond. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have catfish in correct. your pond. Correct, correct. But you just have to understand the impact. For example, right. channel catfish or bull cat bullheads. You know, you don't want to put bullheads. So there's certain things you do and you don't. If you add catfish, you have to understand the implication. Right, and so and you have to make sure you put in the correct species. Mm-hmm. It's no different than cattle, for example, on a on a let's say a hunting farm. Yeah, you know, cattle can have a great a great impact if you you can rotationally graze it. They can help improve the soil, things like that. Mm-hmm. If that, but you have to have that goal when you start because then you have to put the proper amount and the proper type in. Yes, if you have too many. They eat up all the food plots and destroy the land. But if mm-hmm. you have the proper amount and the proper goals from the start, then you can manage those goals. That's right. It's the same thing with a bass pond or any pond is, you know, and some people love to catch multiple species. That's you great. You can have a yeah. pond that has crappie and perch and catfish and bass in it as well. You're probably not going to grow the state record bass in there. Or it's mm-hmm. going to be less likely, but you can still have a great fishery. Sure. But you have to know that going in, what mm-hmm. your goals are. Definitely, mm-hmm. definitely, great point. Yeah. That and that that's why you know we're always, go, always going back to okay, you know, whatever property we get to or you know whatever type of land management we're doing, let's start with the goals. Let's start with sure. that and right. then develop the plan based around those goals because that's ultimately right. you know how the design and layout is going to be established around those goals. And our our goal was very specific. Yes large mouth bass and right everything we do in this particular lake 
if it, it affects our largemouth bass growth and population negatively, we don't do it. Mm-hmm. So that, that guides our overriding principle about what we add and what we don't add. Now, having said that, let me mention one other species that we are thinking about putting in. Hybrid striped bass. Now, okay. hybrid striped bass are actually produced. So you can put in, they grow very big. They grow uh-huh. bigger than the largemouth bass in this part of the country, and they're mm-hmm. a blast to catch. Mm-hmm. But again, they're going to compete with our bass, but because they're sterile, you don't have to uh-huh. worry about them reproducing. Yeah. So you can put in a certain amount, and you can catch them, mm-hmm. and I can take them out and eat them, and they grow very big. So, so in a lake our size, it wouldn't hurt to put in 10 or 20 of those sure. and let them grow big and catch them. Now, we waited, though. Because mm-hmm. we didn't want them competing with our bass the first few years. Sure. So we decided that we would first wait and see how our first two or three years went, how our growth rates were before we added more competition. Because they're going to compete with the bass on a food chain. Yeah. And we're okay with that once we know our, our bass growth rates are stable and, and, and improving and so forth and so on. Um before we add that extra predator in. But even if we do that, and we haven't decided to do that yet, we're going to wait and see what our growth rates are this year because they're, they're outstanding so far. Right. And, and I'll, I'll digress. We, we stocked our pond in, the, in May of 16. Well, in October of 17, excuse me, October of 18, excuse me, I got, I've got that all wrong. We built the pond in the spring of 16 mm-hmm. or started building it. We stocked it in May of 17. Yep. Okay. 18 months later, which was this October, I caught a five and a quarter pound bass. Yep. In only 18 months. That was huge. That was unbelievable growth. And so we want to continue that. We, we really believe this year, which will be our, our third year of growing season, we'll have some eight pounders in here. And by next year, we're sure we'll have some 10 pounders. So mm-hmm. we want to make sure that is, is where it needs to be before we add in another predator. Right. And the only one we're considering is a hybrid striped bass. Makes sense. Because what you put in, you're going to keep and retain unless you're catching and eating. They're not, they're sterile. So you, you basically have control of the number of predators, not exactly. reproducing. Exactly. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about cover real quick? Yeah, let, let's, let's do that. Because I think the last podcast, we, we mentioned the terms fluffy cover mm-hmm. and dense yes. cover. And we, because we had talked about what you had right. put into the pond um, in the right. form of cover, but break down basically, okay, examples of fluffy cover and then examples sure. of dense, and sure. then why they're both necessary. Absolutely. Well, let, let's go because the I remember from the last podcast, we literally cut off right at this time. Yeah. Yeah. And and basically, in the in the the bass world or in the fishing world, we call it dense and fluffy cover. Fluffy cover is that type cover that the spaces, the interspaces between, like, let's say, limbs on a tree or um, that distance between the limbs and things, if, 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 if it's wide, that's called fluffy cover. Mm-hmm. And, and fish, like deer and other, other species, are creatures of edge. A bass would rather, you know, sit there and hover beside log or a limb off a tree than it would in open water. Now, there are open water species. As I mentioned, threadfin shad and gizzard shad and so forth, they're open water species. They filter feed. But a bass is an ambush predator. Mm-hmm. So not only does it want to be hovered up against the edge because it's eat or get eaten, but <laughs> right. also that's where the other fish are and that's where they can pick off a meal. And, and they just relate to cover. Even when they travel, they tend to travel around different contour changes in the bottom, which is structure and cover. So cover, let's say, let's say you have a, 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 a PVC pipe tree in your lake or a car. Like we have a, we actually have a VW bug in our, in our right. pond. <laughs> we, we drained the oil and rolled down the windows and got all the fluids out and we put it in the, in the, in the pond. Well, the bass can move around in there. The bluegill can move around. That's, that's fluffy cover. Or let's take, say you cut a big tree down and the limbs, you cut all the small limbs and you just have the big limbs mm-hmm. left. That's fluffy cover. It's not really offering protection from something getting eaten per se, but it's something for them to relate to. So right. you, you need to have that type cover in your pond, and we have it at all different depths. We have it at shallow water, 
deep water, intermediate water, because that's for all seasons. You need to have that type cover at all the different depths because bass and bluegill and other species of fish change depths throughout the seasons and even throughout the day. So sure. we have that fluffy cover in all depth ranges of the pond. Dense cover is has a lot to do with food chain, back to this food chain. Dense cover is where it's very dense. Think of a Christmas tree and, and with all its needles on it. Where, and, and kind of picture in your mind all these little tiny fish swimming in between the limbs, and a big bass can't get in there and eat them. Mm-hmm. That's what we call dense cover. Or think of a rock pile with all kinds of little rocks around it, and little fish swimming in and out between the rocks, and the big bass can't get in there. That's dense cover. Well, it's very important to have dense cover in a in a trophy fishing lake as well. Because you have fish. Because if you think about it, if you have just a, an open bowl lake or pond with none of this dense cover and a bluegill or another bass goes over there and spawns and all these fish get born, they're going, they have no place to hide. They're just going sure. to get eaten so fast before they get big enough to really impact the food chain positively. You know what that sounded just like, Todd? And I don't mean to interrupt you there. Oh, go ahead. But it's just like planting a monoculture of soybeans. And just letting them all just be out there. As soon as they germinate, they sprout up out of the ground, and there's nothing there to kind of protect them as they build that root system. Right. And they get forged on when they're super young, super tender, palatable, and they don't have that root system to be able to protect themselves as an indeterminate forage bean to continue to go and put off new shoots. You've got to have a little bit of cover so they can get established and then affect the actual food chain and bring in, you know, let's say deer throughout the entire summer and put on pods. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very similar illustration there. Yep, it is. And so it's extremely important to have that dense cover in a bass lake, just like it's extremely important to have that cover crop mm-hmm. with a lot of your, in and in a multi-diverse species in a food plot Yep. Uh, to help protect those young the young growth. In this case, it's the young fish. And it's also important to place that dense cover strategically, yes. which gets me to spawning. Mm-hmm. All right. Think about this. A, a bluegill would prefer to spawn in about six inches to 18 inches of water. Now they'll spawn shallower and they'll spawn deeper if they have to, sure. but they prefer six inches to 18 inches of water depth. And they also spur, spawn in cock. I said spur. I meant spawn. <laughs> excuse me. They spawn in in six inches to eighteen inches of water, and they spawn in colonies. Mm-hmm. They they if you have you have you ever seen a, a shallow part of a pond or a lake, and you see all these things that look like moon craters? That's it. Yep. Like where an elephant just went stepped. Exactly. That is a typical bluegill spawning bed. Now, bass are completely different. Bass like to spawn isolated. They don't like to have other bass close by. In fact, 20 to 30 feet distance between a spawning bed for a bass is perfect. Mm-hmm. And bass also spawn typically, now this is typical, deeper, gotcha. two to four feet of water. Okay. So let's go back to what we're talking about, dense cover and spawning beds. So if you're creating a, a bass lake and you're wanting to do the best thing for your fish, you're going to you're going to create some 6 to 18 inch let's call it 6 inch to 2 feet spawning beds that are like pea gravel or or something that or with a hard bottom and mm-hmm. we use pea gravel for example in let's say in an area let's say 30 by 30 so so that would be a perfect bluegill spawning area because they're going to make all these they're going to take their tail yep. in the spring and they're going to wipe away the silt off those rocks and they're going to do that, and they're going to create these little craters, and they're, you're going to see 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 of them in this 30 by 30 area, and that's going to be a bluegill spawning area. What we did for our bass is we created these shelves. Think of a water and a shelf, just like a bench of a ridge on a, on a, a ridge on a hill for deer. Well, think of a little ridge in the shallower part of your pond in two to four feet of water. Mm-hmm. And we took these uh in our case we actually took you know these uh paint uh uh excuse me mixing buckets for for concrete yes the smaller ones Mm -hmm. okay we took those we put pea gravel in them 
Yep. And we placed one of those every 20 or 30 feet on these shelves, two to four feet depth of water. And that's the spawning for the bass. Now, remember, we, t- we started this discussion with dense cover. Then you place the dense cover very close to those spawning areas because right. those fish, when they get born, they have to immediately get to cover or they're going to get eaten. Mm-hmm. So it's very important that you have dense cover near all your areas where your bass and your or whatever species fish you have where they yep extremely important it's very very similar todd to cover and very close proximity for raising quail poults and and um or excuse me broods for quail and turkeys as well you've got to have great nesting cover and then a food resource that is going to bring in, or, or excuse me, cover natural um, native vegetation that's going to be blooming at the right times. That's going to bring in the insects because turkeys or poults uh, and quail are typically feeding on insects about 70% of their diet when they're super, super young. This first Absolutely. four or six weeks of, of life, they're eating heavy, yeah. heavy insects. So you have to have that vegetation that's going to be bringing in there super close to where they've actually been born because then they've got aerial predators as well. So a lot of similarities between oh, very okay, much. taking a population or, or a species and from start to finish, you've got to have everything spatially, not, not only just, okay, you have to have it present on a property, but spatially you have to have it close to be, to be able to reproduce effectively. That's right. Every it, single it, year. It, that's right. Think of it this way, like a like a fawn or even a, a, a poult like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. If that poult or that fawn has to run across an open field to get to food yep. and then and then feed and then run across an open field to get to cover, that's not going to work very well. No. They're going to get eaten. They're picked and off very easily. They're, they're going to get picked off. It's the same way with, with fish. Mm-hmm. If they get to spawn and they have to swim 50 yards to go find cover, they're never going to make it to the cover. Right. And, and so it's very important that you place this strategically. Now, it's easy for me to say this when I built my lake from scratch because we literally had six months to build the bottom and lay everything out without there being any water in it. But, mm-hmm. but people who have existing ponds can do this as well. Sure. Look at the, think of it this way. All you got to do is – let's say you, you've never, you don't have a, a, a pond that has these areas specifically for spawning and for dense cover. It's very easy to do. Let's say you have an area of your pond that you already know they spawn in, either the bluegill or the bass. Yep. Well, take take. Uh, you, there's lots of things you can do. For example, you can take a, a drip tubing that you use for for sprinkler systems, and you can take a cinder block and you can put, you know, 15 or 20 of these little drip tubes, about two two feet each, mm-hmm. and put them down in a cinder block in the holes of the cinder block, yep. and then pour concrete, quickcrete in them. Yep. And now you've got this cinder block that you can throw in the water that's got these 15 or 20 tubes sticking out of it mm-hmm. that the little fish can swim amongst and, and inside. That's an example. You can take an old Christmas tree yep. and throw in there with a cinder block right beside a spawning area. They actually – you can buy commercially made dense cover uh, that, that's PVC-based and, right. and plastic-based. You can create them with yourself with PVC pipes. Uh, all these sorts of – there's so many things you can do. And, and get creative with it. Now, if you don't already have a spawning bed, you can create one. And here, there's a couple really easy ways to do that. For example, you can take a tractor and put in your tractor bucket. And I have done this in my pond in places where I wish I would have put a spawning bed. And, and so I, I put one in after it was filled up. Take a, a bucket of, of pea gravel, put it in your tractor bucket. You can do pea gravel. You can do... Uh, little small rocks, you know, whatever you can do. It just kind of needs to be solid. And you, you can drive up to this the side of your pond and pick an area that's fairly shallow and, and as best you can evenly dump out that bucket full of peat gravel in, let's say, a five-by-ten area. Mm-hmm. And you just created a spawning bed. Now put some cover, some dense cover beside. If you want a bass spawning bed, do what I did. Take these little mixing bucket, these little mixing trays you can buy at Home Depot for concrete, and and put gravel in them, and throw them out in two feet of water. Yep. Let them sink to the bottom. You just created a bass spawning bed. 
There you go. And then put some dense cover right around it. So there's so many things you can do as an existing pond owner to increase your your spawning ability and your cover. And they say that that 90% of the fish live in 10% of, of the area of a pond. Yeah, and that's generally nice. around cover. Mm-hmm. Now, that 10% ch- changes throughout, throughout the season. Sure, yep. But in any given moment, they say that 90% of the bass are living in 10% of your pond. And generally, it's around structure and cover. Wow. Very interesting. I'd say that's uh, probably yeah. pretty pretty true for a lot of a lot of wildlife species you know they're they're designed to survive and reproduce and where they do that most successfully is in and around cover um so there's a lot a lot of uh important things to take away from from that um todd before we run out of time i want to talk about um real quickly the addition of this lake to Mm -hmm. the property called the hogan you know this sure. this property is extremely diverse from from its recreational opportunities. Um, even before this this lake was created, or or during the the, the creation of this lake, it was beginning to be manipulated. Um, so basically, what is what is replicated there in the lake from from the design standpoint is spread throughout the rest of the property, the 560 acres, to right. improve habitat for um, white-tailed deer turkey and other non-game species but from from an owner of this property and someone who might be interested in recreational Mm -hmm. property like this Mm -hmm. what do you think this lake does for the recreational opportunities throughout entire year that's a great question it it, and it's and you did mention the intensity of which we're managing the entire property it as you can tell i'm very passionate about this lake Mm -hmm. And, and what we did with this lake, well, well, as you know, because you're the land managers that helped me do this, <laughs> yeah. is we're, we had this same exact commitment and passion for our deer and turkey and other wildlife. Yeah. The whole property is being managed this way. And and before I mention you know, what the, the lake has done for this, it's it, it, I think the listeners need to understand or, or you know, it's totally a separate topic, but this whole property – was created to be a recreational hunting, fishing, recreational farm for and to, and to be the best it is. Now, the reason I say that is everything we've done is with that in mind because we're actually going to here this spring, as you well know, mm-hmm. and it's totally off topic, but it's it's probably going to be discussed in other podcasts, is we're going to be uh, uh, opening up for shared ownership in our farm. Yeah. So when we when everything we do has to enhance the the recreational ability of the farm for our yeah. member families, and so so back to the pond. If you think about it, hunting season even in Ohio, hunting season is pretty long. Mm-hmm. But hunting season is really only about four months. Yes, it's basically October, November, December, and January here, and in some states it's less. Right. But here it's about four months. Well, so that's only know, a third January, of the year, right? It's only a third of the year. So if you really have a property such as this that's basically just for hunting, what do you do the other eight months of the mm-hmm. year? Now, now you and I both know we enjoy the habitat work and all that. Sure. And so that's, that's, but that's a whole other topic. But if you think about a pond, especially if we stop trout, mm-hmm. this is a year-round recreation. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. year-round. You can swim in this pond. You can mm-hmm. canoe in this pond. You can kayak in this pond. You can watch the wildlife that comes into this pond is just absolutely fantastic. In fact, I'm sitting here right now w- looking at my pond as I'm doing this podcast, and I just saw about 10 deer run by it and and, and run into one of my food plots. Awesome. You see ducks. You see, you know, we even had a beaver on the pond that, that created a little hut mm-hmm. that you, you saw when you were here. Yep. So we had a family of beavers, which... You know, that's a whole other topic in itself. But my wife <laughs> yeah. told me, you do not shoot the beaver. <laughs> so he, <laughs> yeah. he was off limits. And, but the value both from a, from a monetary standpoint and from a recreational standpoint is just phenomenal. We can, we can fish year-round. Yeah. Now, the bass fishing is great basically March through July, and then it slows down a little bit July and August because it gets so hot. And then it picks up again September through November. So really six or eight months a year, we're catching bass like crazy. 
when we stock trout, we'll be able to catch trout all winter long. Mm -hmm. And you can boat, you can fish, you can canoe. I think any property that has a has a recreational lake, you just added huge value in both money and in pleasure. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and if you think about it, if you're going out there, let's say you're going to buy 500 acres somewhere or 1,000 or whatever it is or 200 if it's got a three or four or five acre bass lake on it that's trophy managed for bass and recreation, you're going to buy that property or you're going to pay more for that property than you do that two or 300 acres that doesn't have a sure. bass pond on it. Sure. You've, you've just opened up the opportunity to enjoy that property much, much longer and through a different crowd as well because not everyone who may be you know, in your family man, likes to hunt all the time. And so there's right, – that's right other benefits and other ways that they can recreate on a piece of land. You know, right. Fishing is great to introduce kids. Um, I mean, it's perfect for the whole family. Yeah. In fact, you bring up a great point. I have uh, a lot of, you know, young people, nieces and nephews and so forth that come to the farm mm -hmm. and they don't, you know, they're two and three and four and five and 10 years old. Yeah. Yeah. They're not hunting yet. You know, and maybe they will, maybe they won't be. But I tell you what, every one of them's caught a bass. Yeah, and more bet. than one bass. Right. And, and here's another thing: is that if if you have family over, and it's a spring day or even a fall day, let's say it's hunting season, you know, it's easy to go grab a pole mm -hmm. and go out, and in ten minutes you can be fishing and having a blast for a couple hours, and you come home and you. But you can't really have family time and go hunt. Yeah, now, it's you know different. me. I'm a, I love to hunt. I'm not mm -hmm. at all saying don't hunt. What I'm saying is, from a purely from a time perspective, sure. Even if, even if you're a serious hunter, if you have a bass pond or or a crappie pond or a catfish or whatever it is you have, you're going to spend more hours enjoying that pond in a given year, way more than you are you're hunting by sheer uh, seasonal. The, the fact that you can fish all year long and the fact that and there's so many times, Matt, so many times that I'm here at the farm and I'm sitting down and I have an extra half hour, 45 minutes to not do some work or whatever. Sure. I go grab a fishing pole and go fish. Easy decision. You don't do that when you're <laughs> hunting. You don't decide, I'm going to go hunt for 30 minutes. That's, That's right. not what you do. That's right. And so from a time perspective, I probably spend many, many, many more hours around my pond than mm -hmm. I do in a tree stand. Ah, great points. Great points. And and that just goes, again, like I said, to, to adding to a property, the value of the property, um, different ways to be able to recreate on it. It just makes it truly multi-use and get the most out of out of the acres on it and, um, you know, potentially the value that you may have spent on the property. Um, just get more and more use out of it. So all great, great Oh, we'll have to do another podcast. There's good things we yeah. didn't even get to today <laughs> no, um, on, on this pond. And just, I mean, this is, this is again, this was a, a hot topic a few weeks ago. And, you know, um, as long as you guys are continuing to enjoy it, we're going to keep talking about it. And another way, honestly, to enjoy this stuff is to join us at the Hogan this year, September 13th Absolutely. through the 15th mm -hmm. for the QDMA Steward 2 course. And that's yes. going to be held at the Hogan this coming year. Sign up. Yes. I think it's the early bird special still for people who are interested. In <coughs> wow. <I> just <coughs> Ugh. Still trying to get over that cold I had a, uh, like three weeks ago. Um, so the sign up is still there available for the early bird special. And I think I talked with Matt Ross the other day. There's still uh, a couple spots open. But uh, they're filling up rather quickly, and there will be a limit for people. So if you are interested in any of the habitat, the, the Hogan itself, um, to come and enjoy it, to learn about it, to learn about how it's being managed, definitely um, sign up for Steward 2. You'll be able to meet Todd. You'll be able to meet us um, and a lot of the QDMA staff there at that event as well. Sure. And two. And, and that will be focused on deer, of course, deer management. Correct. But that's a great opportunity for those pond owners out there to come and see the pond, and we can talk about our feeding program, talk about the, the pond just for, on the side. Absolutely. Absolutely. And th there will be some events that we'll be talking about um, 
a little bit in the next in the next few weeks, honestly, um, about some other opportunities to come out to the farm and, and enjoy it, um, see it, tour it, um, possibly in May, late later spring. So um, be listening for that. And um, we're excited, though, to continue talking about Lake Mickey, the Hogan itself, and all the recreational opportunities that are available on this 560 acres. It's pretty incredible. Thank you. And, so, and you know, it's funny, Matt. We, we were going to talk about the pond, and we did. Uh-huh. But we almost, you know, it's like we, just, we, we basically ended up talking about the food chain and spawning and all the, the feed and the spawning of the bass. Gosh, we still have about ten more topics. <laughs> we sure do. We sure do. Uh, but we uh, luckily we've got all spring and summer to talk about them. That's right. That's, That's right. so. Todd, appreciate your time. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot, a lot of questions that we can uh, forge your way talking about all this, and and again, maybe ways to um, improve other ponds. And uh, we'll uh, we'll be sure to be in contact with you. But thank you so much for your time today. Um, Again, if anyone's interested in the QDMA event, um, go to QDMA.com and register there or comment um, on Facebook post or send um, any questions you've got at info at landlegacy.tv. We'll be happy to um, respond to those and get you guys what you're looking for. Todd, thank you again, sir. We will catch you guys next week. Thank you, Matt. I really enjoyed it, as always. You bet.